There are moments in time, in the history of the world, the country, and the life of a church where something so dramatic happens in the world, in our cultural society events where it seems really appropriate uh, that we just pause for a moment. So if you regularly come along to Christ Church, you'll know that we preach um, generally through series. So we work through a series. We're working through uh, back to 1 Samuel, actually, uh, was due to be. Uh, but we're just going to pause because this week has been a historical week. It's a word that has been used so much. One of the things I just want to say right at the beginning um, there has been so many incredibly eloquent words said uh, during this past week that I have absolutely no intention uh, to add to that. I don't, I'm not able to add to that. There have been some astounding uh, and very thoughtful contributions. But what I do want to do is just pause and take our minds back to the Bible um, in, in order to reflect, I guess, a little bit on this past week, and also to prepare us as we look forward. What an incredible week. A new Prime Minister. We thought that was quite a big event. Uh, and yet, by the end of the week, the most incredible moment has happened in, I'm guessing that for everybody, pretty. Much, I'm thinking, uh, if, if I've got this wrong, you look young, <laughs> But I'm thinking that everybody in this room has probably only known Elizabeth as our queen in all of our life. We haven't known another monarch. And, and how remarkable that she served right to the end, to the point where she actually recognized the new prime minister in the same week that she passed away. If there is ever an example of continuing to the end, I think that just stands out quite remarkably. The longest reigning monarch in our history. I guess some of the words that have jumped out from what has been said over these past few days, honor, duty, dignity, consistency, faithfulness, Assurance, the kind of person who, for so many, we felt as though in the difficult times, she was there to point us to better times, as somebody said most recently. But one of the words that has jumped out continually, and I found it really quite extraordinary, really, that the idea of her faith, her faith has been spoken about so much. And so it's really appropriate for us to think a little bit about that faith that she expressed and reflect how we therefore respond. What I find remarkable is that I'm certainly old enough to remember when the idea of spirituality, when the idea of expressing a faith seemed so passe, so inappropriate, and so out of anything that was appropriate at all. In fact, 
when was it, a number of years ago, where the Queen made a remarkable statement of her own personal faith so clearly, one Christmas speech. It's, it seemed like a dramatic moment, and yet I would say we now live in a society where the idea of expressing our faith, whatever faith we might have, has changed so remarkably that it has become acceptable, reasonable, and appropriate for people to express that they have a faith. I think that turned around in both directions during her life and during her reign. From it being appropriate in the early part of her reign to it being maybe inappropriate to it now being appropriate again. So here we are, Christchurch. What does the Christian faith have to say about this particular point in our history? Well, I've turned to it was one of the most obvious readings from my point of view where it speaks so clearly in the New Testament, although the Old Testament time and time again speaks about the passing of kings uh, and new kings being established. This particular text that we're looking at this afternoon actually speaks about how the church, Christian believers, and maybe if you're not a believer in Jesus this afternoon, maybe it's interesting for you to just think on with us and to reflect a little bit on, on what, what is being said about the responsibility of what it means to be a Christian in the light of monarchy. We read in 1 Timothy chapter, chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, which is the, the few verses that I'm going to probably focus on a little bit more. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. That's Paul speaking to Timothy. Here's a new church in Ephesus. It's a church that has only just embraced the idea of believing in this Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be the Son of God, who had died, who had been buried, who had risen again and ascended into heaven. That is what they had believed for the first time. But they are a fledgling, young church. And Paul sees it appropriate, at the point of them learning how to be a church, that he encourages them to pray, to intercede, to be thankful for all people. Then he goes on to say this, for kings and all those in authority. It's the most direct reference in the New Testament of how the church and therefore how believers in Jesus should respond to those who are in authority, to kings. Prayer intercession, thanksgiving for those who are in authority. It's quite remarkable. And, and here we are, we're 2,000 years after that, and there's all sorts of changes that have gone on in terms of political structures and all the rest of it. But let me just kind of 
join those two together with these thoughts. Firstly, let's have a look at when Paul said that. He said that probably while he was in Macedonia around about AD 64-65. We're fairly sure that it was after he had already been imprisoned once in Rome. Under Roman law, he was imprisoned. There was increasing threats towards the Christian church from authorities. There was the beginnings of persecution, which exploded and unleashed itself across the Christian church in the next 200, 150 years, 160 years. And Paul instructs the church at that moment in time to be thankful and to pray for kings and rulers and those in authority. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? Pray for them. But I think in a way what Paul is saying when he says that is he's drawing authority and leadership and kings into the equation of prayer and relationship between those on earth who pray to God and God who is in heaven. It's not, this isn't, this prayer isn't just in a way a two-way thing. Yes, he's calling the church to pray for rulers and authorities. But in a way, he's kind of drawing those rulers and authorities into that conversation. And he's kind of saying, if we are praying for you, isn't there a responsibility that you should behave in a way that is worthy of those prayers? Because it's... It's a way in which he's expressing the, the compassion and the goodness and the mercy of the Christian faith which we believe in, in relation to a living God. And he's saying that the rulers and authorities are not outside of our thoughts when it comes to that outpouring of goodness. That's a remarkable thing that he says when he has already been a prisoner of Roman authorities. It's not as though Paul says this in some sort of holy vacuum monastery, kind of insulated from any personal impact, where he can say all of these things because it's, it's okay and safe and kind of irrelevant to the realities of life. This is truly relevant to the realities of life for Paul. And he says, pray for those in authority and leadership. It made me think of something that I was reminded of. I'd read it before, <laughs> reminded it sounded as if I heard it first hand. I didn't. It was 1952. I'm not that old. But in 1952, in the Queen's Christmas Address, she had not been crowned, although she was by now queen. Her, her father had died previously. In that Christmas address, she says this, pray for me. Isn't that remarkable? Here we read, we're called to pray for her. And she's calling on the people to pray for her. 
If there is a three-way dynamic that is going on at all, it, it exists in that. But what does she ask for prayer for? That God may give me wisdom and strength to carry out the solemn promises I shall be making and that I may faithfully serve you and him all the days of my life. That's what she prayed. She kind of lived that dynamic of being drawn into the relationship with the living God as subject and monarch. We say, hang on a sec, we live in a democracy. <laughs> we live in a democracy. And, and we, you know, Paul was talking back then in an autocracy, although the Roman Empire was beginning to bring about a democratic citizenship to some extent. And we, we haven't got time to go through the machinations of the Roman Empire, but, but we live in a democracy which has been strongly delivered across the world through Christian thinking. And I now have the ability to express and to exert my right, my right to political leadership and governance. I have my right to express discomfort and opposition to those who will rule over me. Why? Because I live in a democracy. What does this verse have to say about that? Well, as I was preparing for this, I felt as if I was punched between the eyes. Because I, I am really good. I'm really good at being able to exert that right to democratic free speech and critique of those who are in rule over me but I am pretty appalling at the responsibility of praying for those who rule over me. And what do I hold on to most tightly? Do I hold on to most tightly my democratic right? Or do I hold on to most tightly my responsibility before God to pray for those who have the rule over me? It felt like a massive challenge on a very personal level. And maybe it's a massive challenge to all of us. You see, in that sense, the Queen's faithfulness is almost a rebuttal to my unfaithfulness. So I guess the first thing that we've seen there is what this verse has done it's reflected a model of citizenship which she delivered and which we are called to deliver. The second thing we see, however, in this prayer and in the events of this past week is a reminder of the passing of time. The passing of time. It's quite, quite timely. Mum and dad are over in Liverpool. Didn't know that they don't know that I'm leading this afternoon, I don't think. But just before the, the, the service, he sent me a WhatsApp with a photograph. On the photograph, it's the, it's the tombstone of my grandfather, 
my dad's Valentine Howell. And on the tombstone, Valentine Howell died 1964, one year before I was born. Laid to rest there is my grandfather and my nana. And then underneath that is also laid to rest my great-grandfather, Valentine Routledge Howell. How incredible that that might just turn up as a poignant reminder of the passing of time. They've forgotten. They have forgotten people. They no longer have any kind of bearing on our lives. Three, three Valentine Howell, four Valentine Howells in that conversation. The one who received the picture, the one who sent the picture, and the two who were in the picture. Do you know that since 1066, we have only had 61 monarchs. I was quite surprised at that. 61 does not seem many. To go back all the way to 1066, 1066 and William the Conqueror. Between AD 65 when Paul wrote and to the mix and mess of those ages in between, we find ourselves in 1042 to Edward the Confessor. 1042 to 1066, just another one. But you know, it connects us in a way, the passing of another monarch, just as another one in that line of continuity of the passing of time between when Paul spoke these words to a fledgling church and to us today who are responding to the loss of a monarch. It marks the passing of time. Something that the Bible really understands. Something that the Bible doesn't want us to forget about. Psalm 103, written probably 900 years, if my maths is right, before Paul wrote his words here, the psalmist writes this, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of a field. The wind blows over it and it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. If ever there was a historic flourishing like a flower, I would say that we have experienced that in Elizabeth II. Maybe she will be remembered as Elizabeth the Great. And she will be remembered more than every other flower that blows away when the wind drives against it. But it is a reminder of the passing of time. Prince William said in a heartfelt note, 
grief is the price we pay, which was words that his granny said to him. I don't know when, but I've probably got some good ideas of when that was said. When he went through the grief of a loss beyond almost anything that we can imagine when his mother was taken. So how does this verse help us? Must it end? Must death win and love die? Must grief be our only experience? Well, the next few verses actually speak into that. Paul says to Timothy, I want you to pray so that you may know peace. In verse 2, he says, that you may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. How might, how might godliness and holiness flourish? Well, it flourishes in the next few verses. This is good. Godliness and holiness is good. And it pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved. If there's a clear statement that Paul makes here in relation to praying for kings and queens, it's a reflection that the greater king wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. What is the truth? What is the truth that he is talking about? The truth is this. There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. See, Paul is saying, There is a reason why it is a good thing and it is a thing filled with hope to even pray for rulers who are about to oppress us and persecute us and throw us into prison and to execute us. Because that prayer that you pray takes your mind, your thoughts and your relationship outside the passing of time into the eternal reality that is God and the mediator between God and man, which is Jesus. That's what he's saying. He's saying that there is a reason why you should hope. There is a reason why it is still worthwhile praying. Even when it seems as though the rulers and authorities are against you, The reason it's worthwhile praying is because it takes you outside of us now and plants your hope into the eternity that is Jesus Christ. There's the hope. Matteo has already pointed in the direction of an illustration that I got down here. It is so poignant flag at half-mast and a rainbow. 
A rainbow that takes us back even further. Even further than the psalmist or the apostle Paul. Takes us right back to that picture of the promise that God made to humanity. Where he says, I I will not crush you after the flood. I will not destroy you anymore. I will not wipe you out. I will be patient with you. I will be here for you. I will stay with you. I will keep coming back when you keep straying away. I will be here when you return. That's the promise that comes out way back in the, right near the beginning of the Bible. That's what the picture of the rainbow is as far as God's usage of that symbol, that, that thing that we see that happens in the sky when sunlight is refracted through molecules of water and it, def- no, I won't get, I'll get it wrong, but it creates a reminder. It creates a reminder that God is saying, I will be patient. And ultimately, the promise is fulfilled. How does he deliver that? It's in the mediator that is Jesus Christ. Just less than 70 years ago, Elizabeth II prayed, that God would grant her strength and we have witnessed I think God's answer to that prayer she has been granted strength she has been granted strength to sustain her calling and her responsibility To deliver and to serve us right to the end. I think we've seen her prayer answered over the past 70 years. Is that the end? Is that where her faith ends? Oh, no. So, so thankfully, no. Because she can say, she can say this. Alongside the Apostle, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7, he writes this. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. She has swapped A crown for a better crown. Is that it? Is that it? No. Because it carries on and it says, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. It makes me think that if anything this past week makes us long for the appearing of Jesus Christ, even more.